Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Zatarans, maker of New Orleans pantry staples like Creole mustard, fish fry, and jambalaya mix since 1889. Recipes and more at Zatarans.com. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. Although the home kitchen has always been considered a woman's domain, we've had a hard time breaking into the professional restaurant scene. On this week's episode, we're talking with the ladies who have overcome multiple obstacles to reach the top. Chef Susan Spicer was the second woman to ever be named the James Beard Outstanding Chef of the Year when she picked up her award in 1993. Rebecca Wilcom, formerly chef de cuisine at Herb Saint, won Best Chef of the Southeast for her work there in 2017. We'll catch up with Susan and visit Rebecca at her new restaurant, Gianna. Finally, we sit down with Chef Meg Bickford to hear all about her experiences as she worked throughout her pregnancy. That baby made for some interesting times in the kitchen when Meg's belly kept her from reaching the stove. We're celebrating the ladies in the kitchen on this week's Louisiana Eats. Meg Bickford is a native New Orleanian, and like many others, it's no surprise she grew up in the kitchen. This led her to studies at John Foles's Culinary Institute, where she received a degree. After school, Meg landed in the Commander's Palace kitchen, where she really showed what she was made of, rising through the ranks to become the first female sous chef of the nationally revered institution. Meg joined us in the Louisiana Eats studio to discuss her culinary journey. Meg, I am so tickled to have you here. You know, um, we're just full of girl power in the <laughs> studio this afternoon, aren't we? Meg, you're from New Orleans. You've got South Louisiana roots. It's hard to believe anybody out of here does much of anything but food. How did food <laughs> grab you? Uh, the same way that it grabs most people. I was just born in the kitchen with my family. Both my parents cooked at home all the time. Um, my aunts and uncles all cooked. My grandparents cooked. Just that was kind of the reason to get together all the time, you know, and we have such a big South Louisiana family. So that was the center of everything. That was the center of conversation. That was the center of you know, what we were doing that weekend, and that was just what was so important. I think, to be honest, that's most of the reason why I got into cooking in the first place was not just the food and how great it is to eat good food, but more of what the food does for people and how it brings everybody together and those feelings that you get from eating things that your grandmother used to cook or, you know, walking into a home that smells like onions and garlic and, you know, the starting of a roux and that kind of thing. It's just, it's more of like that personal feeling that food can bring you than actual food. If you have a single scent or taste memory that brings your grandmother to you, what is it? 
uh, pecan pie <laughs> would be one of the first things. Um, she used to make these tiny little handheld pecan pies, which I loved so much because you never had to share. You know, it's like you got one and that was all yours. Um, but she had a huge pecan tree in her front yard. So it would start with us having to go out into the yard and actually pick the pecans and then shell the pecans. And so it was like all of this work to get a pecan pie, which just made it so much sweeter. So just all of that. I mean, just roasted, the smell of roasted pecans, just that brings her back, you know. And you knew, I guess, in high school, when, when, at what point in your growing up did you go, I think I'm going to do it professionally? I would definitely say it was high school. Um, it was all, I mean, I was always in the kitchen. I was always helping my mom. I really enjoyed baking, not so much anymore, <laughs> but when I was a kid, I really enjoyed baking and, and, really thought that that was probably the route that I would go. Um, but I would say about halfway through high school, I really started looking at culinary schools. And that's when I broke it to my parents that this was probably <laughs> what I was going to do professionally. My dad kind of tried to talk me out of it for a while. Um, loved the idea, just hated the lifestyle. And he kind of knew what a lot of that lifestyle was, um, which I was naive to. You know, I thought I knew, but you don't know until you live it, you know? No. Um, so he kind of tried to talk me out of it, but once he realized that there was no talking me out of it, both my parents were, of course, very supportive. And so you went to the John Foles Culinary Academy in Thibodeau. Absolutely. And I loved it. And I've got family from down there, so I love that part of the state. I mean, it's just beautiful. You know, most of my family's from down the bayou, like in Cut Off in La Rose, and my godparents were in Thibodeau at the time that I was in school, which was awesome because there was always a couch to sleep on and, and a place to do laundry. I, I loved the Chef John Falls Culinary Institute. I thought it was just amazing. And way back then, we were in part of the science building in this tiny little cozy kitchen, and now they have this immaculate oh. building with beautiful equipment. It's just awesome the way the program's grown over there. Well, your whole life came along in a bit of a charmed way because right out of culinary school, the great award-winning chef, Tori McPhail from Commanders, came and got you. It was uh, it was pretty awesome. So I was kind of shoved by one of my instructors at Nichols to look at Commanders. To me, Commanders was such a mecca, you know, and I mean, it was on this high hill and this pedestal that I couldn't reach, um, at least not yet in my career. And being very young and not really... You know, in culinary school, I thought I knew everything, got out of culinary school, realized I didn't know anything. So I went to Commanders and thought it was going to be more of a uh, practice of interview process, maybe, <laughs> you know, like I thought I thought it would be a good stage and kind of, you know, feel that out. But I not once did I think I would actually get a job. Uh, but they were very gracious and accepted me. And I started as a salad cook and kind of worked my way all the way up. Well, you did work your way all the way up because I was pretty shocked to learn that you're the first female sous chef at Commanders. Uh, that is that is a title I hold extremely dear to my heart. What year did you become the first female sous chef? Oh, goodness. My timeline's a bit of a blur, but I want to say probably 2011. What do you think is different about you? What do you think set you apart that allowed you to grab that important rung on the ladder? I will say that I have some amazing mentors at the time. Um, coming up through that kitchen is very challenging and very demanding, especially 10 years ago. 
Um, it, it was a much different kitchen, but I did. I had a lot of really great sous chefs and executive chefs and chef de cuisine around me. Uh, Chris Barbado and Tori McPhail really took me under their wing. And I just didn't give up. I showed up every day. Like, you know, all the mistakes that I made the day before was like, I wasn't going to forget them and I wasn't going to make them again, you know? And I made a million mistakes, believe me. And I had a million hardships, um, but I didn't. I was just unbelievably determined and once I knew that it was almost in my grasp, it just made me so much more determined. And it was like, you know, I can't do anything else until I've crossed this off the list kind of thing. So I I did. I worked really, really hard for it. What's very cool about a kitchen like Commander's is that it takes so many people to get the job done that you have so many people around you all the time. And it's so many different personalities and styles. And so you have this opportunity to kind of learn from this library. And so you kind of pick and choose from the people what you like from some people and what you don't like from other people. And that's why I tell like young managers that are coming up, it's like, take advantage of that. You know, the fact that you have this array of people that you can learn from. Um, So I was very fortunate to have all of that and to have really talented people around you. You know, I mean, those people can cook. <laughs> um, so I, just focusing on the right things to focus on, um, being a sous chef and having the information in front of you that, um, you know, I mean, T and Lally share. You know, it's like we sit down and we go over the P&L. And it's like, you know, in some businesses, that's not anybody's business, but the people who are responsible for the money. It's like, well, we order stuff. We are responsible for the money. And we're responsible for the labor. And we're responsible for all these things. It's not just the chef and the owner kind of thing. What an incredible thing to be able to work with T and Lolly and then consequently indirectly have even that touch point of Ella. Oh, absolutely. Right there. The phone in the kitchen would ring and you'd pick it up and it was Ella Brennan. And it's like... you. You know, you catch yourself for a second because uh-huh. you realize. <laughs> and she, you know, is asking for something or, or needs help with something. So you run next door and then you're there for two hours. And it's like the greatest two hours of your week. You know, you run over to, to bring her something. And then she's like, well, sit down. And it's like, absolutely, I will sit down, you know. I've had some really, really awesome conversations in that parlor. So it's, it's really awesome that to spend so many years right next door to that lady. When we come back from a short break, our conversation with Chef Meg Bickford continues. Louisiana Eats returns in a minute. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923, and with support from the Napoleon House, located in the historic French Quarter. Dishing up 200 years of history, refreshing Pimm's Cup cocktails, and toasty warm mufaladas. All-day dining and private events at 500 Charter Street. 
you're just joining us, we've been talking with Chef Meg Bickford, the first female sous chef at Commander's Palace. In 2017, she worked throughout her pregnancy. Quite a challenge in a professional kitchen. So I am a selfish person. (laughs) I'll be the first to admit it. And my career was kind of my baby. That was kind of the plan. And then surprise. And so we introduced sweet Stella Marie in August. Um, And she's just the love of my life. Amazing how a baby changes everything. Oh, changes everything. Yeah. How did you get ready? Because this wasn't just like um, feathering the nest and painting the nursery. No, no. Um, Well, I mean, I... It was challenging being eight months pregnant and working, you know, I mean, because I still was working 10, 14 hours a day. But I was I was pretty impressed with what I could accomplish. I will say that I was my um, I still have chef coats that I mean, are just completely stretched out, you know, and it's like all of them. They have black bellies from my tummy rubbing on everything. Um, But yeah, it was it was challenging. But I mean. You just kind of figure it out. You know, it's kind of like the beauty of what your body can do. You know, it's like it's kind of impressive what you can do when you're in that situation. I had a lot of support. You know, I mean, somebody would see me pick something up and they'd, you know, stop me and do it for me. But it was an extremely challenging time for me because I'm not used to that. And being told to stop doing things or to let people help you or, I mean, that was that was so challenging for me. I can't tell you how stubborn I was being. Steve Woodruff is the uh, director of operations for the Commander's Family Restaurants. He would walk into the kitchen and he would see me doing something I wasn't supposed to be doing or running around or I'm like, you know, on a milk crate stirring a kettle of gumbo. And he would just like cringe. And he's like, what are you doing? Somebody can do that. And then my cooks would be like, whoa, 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 we offered, you know, like, don't get mad at us. She won't let us help. Eventually, I learned to point and, you know, you have to delegate. But it was, it was very hard to, like, because there is a, at a point, you are giving up some control. Oh, my goodness. That was the thing I remember being the most terrified of. Yeah. Like, right at the end, around that eight and nine months, I remember feeling totally helpless. helpless. Yeah. That's the word. (laughs) I remember feeling completely helpless for the first time in my life. And for a woman who's used to having a modicum of control... That was so scary. It was. And then, you know, you think about it. It's like, well, now I have this child in this world. Like, my control is gone. (laughs) You know, like, I've completely lost it. Well, you worked (laughs) up until how close to the baby's birth? Uh, I quit working two weeks before she was born. And I was very determined to keep working, but I got to that point. I just couldn't. Yeah. Superwoman. (laughs) And when did you come back? Uh, I was fortunate to be able to take quite a bit of time. So I was, I took, I think, 11 weeks off. But then you've got a little tiny baby. It's the hardest thing. How have you managed from that point, from that 11-week end of maternity leave, how have you managed moving forward? Uh, I get better every day. Because it, it's definitely been a challenge. Um, I will, like my first day back to work, I think I sat in my car and cried, you know, before I went in. I had the most immense feeling of guilt, like I was leaving my baby. And it's like, but I'm her mother, and I'm supposed to be there, 
with her. I'm supposed to be there with her constantly. I'm supposed to take care of her. She's just an infant, you know? Um, so I did. I felt insanely guilty. I still struggle with that. Um, How do you cope with it? What are your coping mechanisms? Um, I mean, I, like I said, I still I still struggle. I still have real hard days, you know? Um, but I will say, and, and this was actually advice given to me by T. Um, and she was like, you know, my mom did it. You know, so don't think that it can't be done. And it's all about what you want to do. And if you want to continue this career, which you've worked so hard to build, you know, that's it can be done. And and that was Ella's thing was always quality time over quantity of time. And that was hard to hear because it's like, okay, but I want to be with her all the time. And every second I'm with her is quality. So it doesn't make sense. But but T is absolutely right, and L is absolutely right that it is. It's making the absolute most of the time that I do have with her, and whether that means that I just lay on the floor and she crawls all over me, then that's our time together, you know. But it's she's amazing, and I just keep telling myself that you know, I mean, I'm doing this for her. It used to be all about me, and now I have nothing to do with it. Everything I do is for her, and. So I'm working to support her and I'm working to show her what a strong work ethic is. And I'm working, you know, she doesn't understand it now, but I'm sorry, one day she's going to know what I'm talking about. It's following your dream and it's doing what you want and it's supporting your family and it's and it's hard, (laughs) but it's it's an important thing. And that's what I want her to get out of it. And telling myself that constantly kind of kind of keeps me going, you know. Well, Meg, you just make all of us girls proud because you're just kicking butt and taking names. Well, thanks. I'm having a lot of fun doing it. (laughs) I'm so tickled to have had this opportunity to hear about your amazing path. And congratulations, Mom. What a great thing. That's my favorite title. That was Meg Bickford, the first female sous chef at Commander's Palace. Chef Rebecca Wilkins speaks softly, but carries a big whisk. Humbled but determined, she quietly rose through the ranks at Donald Link's original restaurant, Herb Saint, where she served as chef de cuisine. In 2017, she was catapulted into the limelight when she took home the James Beard Award for Best Chef of the Southeast. This year, Rebecca expanded her role with Link's company even further, becoming executive chef and a partner of a new Italian restaurant, Gianna named after her beloved Italian grandmother. Louisiana Eats recently visited the busy chef at her eatery to discuss her new venture. Before we hear that, let's listen to some highlights of our interview with Rebecca back in 2018. I asked her then to take us back to 2008, the year she moved to New Orleans from Boston and got her start working for Donald Link at Herb Saint. Well, I knew that I wanted to work for Donald. I had read some interview with him, and he was talking about music. I'm like, man, this guy's cool. You know, so I I moved down. I immediately, you know, had a stack of resumes, and um, 
I was headed to Koshan to drop one off because I really wanted to work at Koshan, but uh, I happened to drive by Herb Saint first, and, you know, walked in the door and just so happened to be wine tasting day, and Donald and Stephen, a bunch of people were at the bar, so I just walked up to him and handed them my resume. What did you start off doing at Herb Saint? What was your first job? My first job was AM Saute. So that was a production-heavy station. So my first job at Herb Saint was making dirty rice and making gumbo and okra and tasso gravy and shrimp bisque. And um, so, I mean, I, I thought I was really lucky. I'm like, man, you know, I just Massachusetts girl moving down, you know, first job I get to make gumbo every day. I mean... It's crazy. Why Why are they trusting me to do that? It's the but, stuff dreams are made of. <laughs> you know? Really, yeah. <laughs> How long did it take you to become the chef de cuisine? I moved here in 2008. I became chef de cuisine in 2011. And how does it work at Herb Saint to be the chef de cuisine and work with Donald in that position? I mean, it was a mentorship, you know, and he, what we do is we talk a lot about food and we talk about dishes and I experiment with those dishes and try things out and we taste things, you know, and then eventually we start traveling together. And so, you know, Donald and I have traveled all over together and it's a creative process that has become really organic and natural and he's been through it all too. So he also helps me work through, you know, my own insecurities and how I define myself as a chef. And, you know, it's a creative relationship that happens on many levels. As a woman managing a kitchen, what's been going on in your mind the whole time that these male-dominated workspaces have been sort of blowing up because of bad behavior? Well, I think that, you know, overall, I have a very firm moral compass, you know. So, things are right and things are wrong. You, There's no other way to me, you know. So, you know, in the kitchen, I've always been aggressive, but I have been, you know, my entire life. Um, I was kind of born this way. I, I feel like I fit. I didn't have to change the way that I am to fit into a kitchen. I found that environment and I was like, wow, man, like this. Yeah, this is where I'm supposed to be, you know, and um, I can be myself in this place. Awesome. You know, and always try to do the right thing. I try to push people and motivate people every day, regardless of, you know, their sex or anything else. I never really saw myself as, you know, a woman in the kitchen. I'm like, yeah, I'm part of a team. I'm a line cook, you know, but I also made good choices. I didn't work in places like that. If I saw any inkling of anything that I didn't agree with, I didn't work there. Every time I felt like I was, you know, treated differently because I'm a woman, I just kept going and proved them wrong. What are your goals and aspirations now? I'd say, you know, they're to keep learning, um, traveling. Um, I feel like, you know, as a chef, the more I learn, the more I feel like I don't know anything. The life of a chef or anyone working in a restaurant is so demanding. It's not like you have a lot of flex time. So I imagine there's lots of places in the world that are beckoning to you. Yeah, and they all have to do with food. You know, it's the food calling me to places. Um, You know, do I want to see Machu Picchu? Yes. But what interests me more is going and having, you know, the food in Peru. I just spent uh, almost a month in Italy, which was great. My mom is from Italy, but she's from the Veneto. I went to Rome, and it's the first time I'd been to Rome since I was, you know, a baby. And I 
I was in Rome for five days. I'm like, all right, I'm going to go eat here, and I'm going to eat there, and I'm going to get pizza here and go to this market and do all these things. And then I thought, well, what am I going to do in between? I'm like, what am, well, I'm, I, it, The thought never even occurred to me that I'm in Rome. I'm going to go to the Vatican. I'm going to go to the Colosseum. And I did all of those things, but um, it was an afterthought almost. I hate to say that because it's so incredible, but um, it was. Uh, I was there for the food. <laughs> Rebecca Wilkham's interest in Italian cuisine came from a much deeper place than her travels. As she mentioned, her mother is from the Veneto region, an area in Italy where her American-born father was once stationed. When she was growing up, Rebecca became immersed in her family's Italian cuisine. As she developed her talents at Herb Saint, she found herself creating more and more Italian dishes with a familiar twist food that she might have found on her grandmother's table. As you might imagine, all this inspiration made its way into her new restaurant, Gianna. We joined Rebecca in the office of her busy Italian eatery to learn all about it. Rebecca, thank you so much for welcoming me here at your new restaurant. Please tell us about your baby. Well, my baby's been in the works for a long time. I would say at least for the last five years we've been talking about it. Named after my grandmother, so it's named Gianna. So, yeah, the food, it's Italian. It's uh, inspired by food from all over Italy, from our travels, from our research travels, from food I grew up eating, to food that we've been inspired by in restaurants throughout Italy and also in other places. How old were you when you first traveled to Italy? And your grandmother lives there, right? Yeah, I think my first trip I was probably three months old. Uh, my mom's from Italy, so the only person who is not in Italy on that side of the family is my mother. Um, she lives in Massachusetts. But everybody's over there, my grandparents, my aunts, uncles, cousins. My grandparents live in the southern uh, Veneto, uh, which is in northern Italy. It's the region known for polenta, risotto, radicchio. It's a region where you find Venice and Verona, um, but they live right on the border of Emilia-Romagna. They're not too far from Bologna. So there's a lot of the influence of Emilia-Romagna in my grandmother's cooking, um, tortellini and brodo, pinzin, which is a form of gnocco fritto, a form of fried dough that you eat with salumi. You'll see some of that stuff on the menu now, and then you'll see more of it creep up later too. What did your grandmother say about a restaurant that is even named after her? She was very excited. I think the first thing she said was, my name isn't Jana, because everyone's <laughs> called her Janina her whole life. <laughs> so I said, no, your name is Jana. Janina means like little Jana, you know. Um, so I think that was the first thing she said, but she was really excited. Um, she has told everybody, you know, we go to the market and she tells everybody and she called me the other morning and said that they had written an article in the paper about the new restaurant. So she was very excited to be in the paper too. <laughs> Tell me about the restaurant interior. Well, we as a group um, designed this restaurant together. A lot of it was inspired by places we had been and things we had seen and things that we like and aren't, you know, make us, I don't know, feel something. The mismatched tiles, the marble, all of it 
is inspired by you know our travels and our I guess aesthetics as a team in the beginning we had an idea for something a little bit more rustic but I think we're all really happy with how um, beautiful and bright and airy and and clean and the balance between masculine and feminine um, I think really comes through and is really beautiful you know the the balance between old and new um, which I think is the Italian aesthetic today I actually think that we did a pretty good job of it the restaurant itself is beautiful. The buzz about it is just enormous. To me, at least, you are such a young woman with such an enormous mantle on your shoulders now. How does that feel? Um, terrifying. Uh, I, you know, second guess myself, I think, every second of every day. Um, and nervous, yes, beyond nervous. I mean, I, I think that, you know, if you're not constantly questioning what you're doing and constantly not doubting yourself but questioning then you'll never move beyond what you're capable of right now I mean I think that it's important to always push yourself so I think that although it's really you know stressful and nerve-wracking and um, to open a restaurant you know it also helps you push beyond your boundaries for sure and then one day you wake up and you're like oh my god look it's a restaurant it's actually open this is a real thing it's still hard to envision until you're actually in it I don't know I've been thinking a lot about like you know a year ago how I pictured this place and six months ago how I pictured this place and for a long time you'd never really think it's going to happen and then it does so those moments happen a lot where you're like deep breath you know and look around and you know you still doubt yourself but then you realize that I don't know, everything you've done along the way has always, you've always been able to make it happen, so this has to work, you know, and you're gonna make it happen. <laughs> Rebecca Wilkham, executive chef and a partner of Gianna in New Orleans. When did women first begin to receive recognition from the James Beard Foundation? Stay tuned, and we'll explore that topic when we come right back. Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. Do you have a date to dine out for life this year? Thursday, June 6th is this year's official Dining Out for Life Day. For the 25th year, Dining Out for Life, the most important annual fundraiser for Crescent Cares Food for Friends, is encouraging everyone to dine out at a participating restaurant. You can find the full list of participating restaurants at diningoutforlife.com. The link will be on our website as well. I'm serving as celebrity chair for the eighth year, and this year we've decided to expand the one day to an entire week. 
Catch up with me at our official Dining Out for Life events, starting with our dim sum drag brunch at Maypop Restaurant on Sunday, June 2nd with cocktails from Monkey Shoulder. The fun continues on Thursday, June 6th, where I'll be hosting a Hendrix Happy Hour from 6 to 8 p.m. at Tableau in conjunction with the opening of Marquee, a Le Petit Theatre vaudeville-style production featuring Vincentos and Lady Beast. Friday, June 7th, we'll continue the celebration from 4 to 6 p.m. at Brennan's Restaurant's Gay Pride Happy Hour. Don't miss Project Runway's Mondo Guero sabering the champagne in the Brennan's patio at 5 p.m. Then, on Saturday, June 8th, we'll wrap up the week's celebrations with a pop-up drag brunch at Sobu, complete with a glitter bar from Electra Cosmetics. All events will benefit Crescent Cares Food for Friends, a program that delivers over 39,000 hot meals annually to people suffering from cancer and HIV. They operate a community food bank as well. So come out and join us for this year's Dining Out for Life. You'll find links to all the events on our website at poppytooker.com. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. When did women first receive recognition from the James Beard Foundation? Long considered the Oscars of the food world, the James Beard Awards began in 1990. And that year, not a single woman was deemed worthy of a mention. In 1991, Nancy Silverton was named Outstanding Pastry Chef for her work at Los Angeles's Campanile Restaurant. Then, the very next year, in 1992, Alice Waters was the first woman to be named Outstanding Chef, and her establishment, Chez Panisse, was designated Best Restaurant in the U.S. Not until 2014 did Nancy Silverton receive her Outstanding Chef of the Year Award for her L.A. eatery, Pizzeria Mozza. We have lots of James Beard Award-winning women in New Orleans. In fact, both Rebecca Wilkham and Susan Spicer, who we hear from in this week's episode, are both James Beard Award-winning chefs. It's interesting to note that Susan was named Outstanding Chef in 1993, the year following Alice Waters' award, while relative newcomer Rebecca Wilkham received Outstanding Chef of the Southeast in 2017. But wait, there's a new James Beard award-winning woman in town. Big congratulations to our friend Kelly Fields of Willa Jeans. On May 6th of this year, she brought home the Outstanding Pastry Chef Award. You go, girl. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. Chef Susan Spicer is a New Orleans culinary icon. Since 1979, the unflappable chef has become one of the city's most celebrated and popular culinary figures. Susan co-founded her flagship French Quarter restaurant, Bayona, in 1990, earning the James Beard Award three years later. 
She's written an award-winning cookbook, appeared on Top Chef, and inspired a character on the HBO series Treme. In addition to Bayona, she's now the owner of restaurants Mondo and Rosedale. Susan, what a treat it is to sit down with you in the Louisiana Eats studio and talk about your amazing journey as a chef. You know, you're one of my great heroes because you were blazing the trail for women in the kitchen just at about the same time I was beginning to entertain a life in food myself. How did this all get started? Well, you know, uh, as I've said before, I I did a lot of things badly until (laughs) I tried a lot of, you know, looking for something. And I happened into cooking through a girlfriend of mine, and it satisfied all my cravings, really, you know, which was for something creative, something physical, something uh, social. It just hit a lot of things. And... You know, I seem to have an aptitude for it. It came together like 10 years after I got out of high school. So, you know, a little bit. Come from a family of late bloomers. And, uh, you know, it's taken us a while to find what we do. But it just, it, it was very natural. The food was in your blood, though, I think, because your mother She's is a great cook. quite a great cook. Yeah. And one of the things I think you're known for is your international flair with food. Don't you think that that had something to do with how you grew up? Oh, it had a lot to do with that, yeah. My mom was Danish. She grew up in South America. We lived in the Netherlands where she learned Indonesian cooking. And yeah, so dining was always an adventure in our family. And I'm one of seven kids, and we all love food. We all, you know, thanks to my mom. She did it I say effortlessly. I mean, she cooked for nine people every day. She gave a lot of dinner parties. And she never seemed to approach it as if it were drudgery. So that helps. So you're uh, 26 years old. You figured out the food thing. How does the journey begin? Well, my first job was with Pamela Calhoun at Girton's, that lunch restaurant in the um, ICB Bank building at 300 St. Charles. I think it was 300 or 333 St. Charles, from which we both got fired. But um, (laughs) then I started with Danielle Bonneau at the Louis XVI. And that was in the Marie Antoinette Hotel down in the French Quarter on Toulouse Street. And it was really, I think, the first true French restaurant that wasn't French Creole, I, I would think. I imagine that the time that you spent with Danielle Bonneau was sort of, in some ways, like a traditional European apprenticeship. It was. I had to bug him a lot, though. You know, he wanted to ignore me for a while, but I asked a lot of questions, and I would always go up and check out all the books, and I was like, can you use tarragon and mushrooms in the same, you know, stuff like that? And he was like, and then he would start taking me on like when he would be doing cooking classes or demonstrations or stuff. And then, you know, he would do a couple of things and then he would go, and now Suzanne is going to show you how to make the creme brulee. And I would be going like, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. And he would go, shut up and do it. You know, so that was kind of his (laughs) gentle you know, way of uh, guiding me uh, was shut up and do it. And then Danielle, well, he went on to become food and beverage manager for Mark Smith in the small hotel 
local hotel company, um, and they bought the St. Charles Hotel, and that's when we opened uh, Savoir Faire, which was in 1982, and they gave me my first chef position, which I thought they were nuts, but they oh, said, I, you know. It was just so cool because it was like anything goes. I remember doing brains and eggs, you know, at, at brunch at Savoir Faire, you know, Moroccan, sort of like a shakshuka kind of thing, but with brains. <laughs> Danielle would let me do anything I wanted. So it was really fun. It was a, that was a real voyage of discovery, my first chef position and, you know, being, as I say, Charles in charge. It was, uh, you know, it was tough. Well, you know, with that always comes some startling mistakes. What's something that has stuck with you that you're like, oh, my goodness? Um, you know, it wasn't so much a colossal mistake. It was more just how terrified I was to be the one that people came to, that I was supposed to have all the answers. And I just, you know, just didn't feel like I was that person. <laughs> you know, it it was a it was it was a, just proving a development. Ground. Yes, it was. It was a proving ground. And it just it was so hard to finally get to the point where I thought, oh, you know, this is why I'm the chef, because I have standards and I'm willing to stick to them. And, you know, some of these people, they don't feel that same way. You know, Danielle would teach me, you know, that it had to be right. And I realized that it wasn't so much just like my, you know, fabulous creativity or whatever. It was just, you know, having having standards and making sure that things were right and being willing to stand your ground, it, it took a while. It was like a metamorphosis, I guess, is the word I was searching for. And then you were at the Maison de Ville. Yeah. That's right. And you spent a little time working in restaurants in the French Quarter. How do you end up with your own restaurant in the French Quarter? That happened because the Maison de Ville was just so tiny, and it really, people would get really aggravated, I guess, because it was kind of a hot ticket, you know, at a certain point. In 89, I think, is when I got the food and wine best new chef thing, which was still kind of a new, I think it was only the second year that they awarded it. That was the start of the whole, you know, celebrity chef, whatever, you know, you want to call it. What it yeah. kind of was, you know, and it came it with a lot of perks. And it came with a lot of people wanting to go there because they knew your name, not because, you know, for whatever reason. And then people started saying, oh, you know, let's open a restaurant together. I want to put you in a bigger place. I want to do this and that. And, and then, you know, I met Regina Kiever. And we looked around for um, some locations to maybe expand, you know, do something bigger. You know, it just kind of came about pretty quickly. And when did you open? That was uh, end of March 1990. And then in no time short, you get the James Beard Award. Three years. Three years, yeah. Yeah, yeah which good, I'm, no, believe me, I, I was very, very proud of that. You forged the way. You win the James Beard Award. And Bayona just becomes one of the things that New Orleans is really proud of. Well, thank you. you. From those very early days, it was the place to go. Well, and now the challenge is, you know, it's a little bit ironic because when you have been around for a long time, when you're trying to hire staff and stuff, it's kind of like, eh, we don't want to go work for that old place, you know. So you have to try to stay relevant without being trendy. But I still like 
to hear my chefs, you know, new ideas. And even if I go like, mm, you know, I wouldn't make that myself, but let's check it out and see. Uh, oh, all right. Oh, uh, you know, that's really, that's delicious. It's good. I wouldn't have thought of it. You know, so I try to keep an open mind and we do try to, you know, evolve. I don't want to just rest on laurels. After a decade successfully operating her French Quarter restaurant, Bayona, in 2000, Susan focused her energies on a new venture in the Central Business District. Along with two partners, Susan opened a small bistro called Herb Saint, stewarding it through its early years. Running the kitchen was an up-and-coming young chef named Donald Link. Yeah, so Donald had worked for me before, and then he moved back to town, and I was kind of casting around for something else to do in the warehouse district because it was really starting to percolate down there, and I liked it. You know, I I had great confidence in Donald as a chef and a partner, and, and so it was really a stepping stone for him, and it just got to a point where it was kind of silly. I was at Bayona, and I would come over to Herb Sane and you know, Donald would have been there all day, like working his butt off, and and then people would come to me and go like, "Oh, Susan, this was so great, thank you." And it just started to feel <laughs> uncomfortable to me because he was really the managing partner and the working chef, and I, you know, so that was good. It became his restaurant. And I still was a partner there um, till after Katrina. And then, at what point does Mondo come along? Two thousand? No, two thousand ten. Whoa. <laughs> Seems like it was earlier than that, but no, June of, of 2010. Yeah, because Mondo really became part of the rebuilding right. of the lakefront. Of, yeah, but of, when you think, you know, that was already five years after Katrina. You, know? you have to think how horrible it was yeah. to put it all in context. Believe me, I remember. <laughs> yes, because <laughs> that's your neighborhood. Yeah, that was you, my my house. Yeah. yeah, you had plenty of that. There have been some pretty big bumps. I mean, there was the bump of Katrina. Yeah. That was, then there was a you know, big and bump. even the, the, the BP. oil spill. That was horrific. That yeah. was really horrific. Has there ever been a time when you thought, maybe I'm just going to quit? Um, you know, do I want to just quit? Well, there nah. never was a time. No, no never you're just not like, I'm just going to quit. You know, I mean, you know, I would say other challenges of like staffing, you know, and I know that every generation has always said, you know, and we've been saying it for a long time, oh, these kids today and all that, you know, have no work ethic. But, you know, it's hard now even to get people to show up for an interview or if they show up for the interview and they say they'll come in for a trail, you know, will they show up? It, you know, they're looking for better work environment, which is good, but it's important for people to participate and give back <laughs> too. You got to work for things, I think. For me, my deal was just focus on the food and kind of everything else sort of fell away. I had I worked with guys that didn't want women in the kitchen and were rude or badgered me or whatever, but I just focused on what I was doing. I thought about the food. I didn't worry so much about what the environment was. You know, you just came in and did the work. And the work was very satisfying. And that's where I got my fulfillment from. 
you know, it was from doing a good job. And I just never paid that much attention to the rest of it, I guess. I don't, but I don't know if that's exceptional or, you know, what. Thank you, Susan. <laughs> it's, it's such a pleasure to get to spend this time with yeah, you. Yeah, it's so nice. Thank we don't you, do it Susan. that often. No, thank not you. nearly enough. Thank you. Chef and New Orleans icon, Susan Spicer. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Have you visited poppytooker.com lately? That's where you'll find not only our full broadcasts, but our quick bites for podcasting or webcasting and special videos from producers Jonathan Evans and Marion Gay. That's all on poppytooker.com. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Zatarans, and from Camellia Brand Beans. Additional support for Louisiana Eats is provided by the Shreveport Bossier Convention and Tourist Bureau and from Dickie Brennan's Steakhouse, a local New Orleans steakhouse serving prime beef and Louisiana Wagyu in New Orleans' French Quarter. Original theme music composed by David Pomerleau and performed by Johnny Sketch in the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner and special projects manager Reggie Morris. And to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Come visit us anytime in our Louisiana Eats studios at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. We're on Instagram and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.